Thank you so much for joining us in week two of this series called Illusions. And listen, guys, happy Father's Day to everybody who's celebrating Father's Day. And I've got a special and unique word for fathers and father figures, but all of us are ultimately included in this word. Uh, so let's turn our attention to Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 6 through 7. And here's the big idea I want you to make sure you keep on your mind. Everybody shout, I can. Can you just shout it? I can. Type it in the chat. I can. Now listen, let's, let's, let's read. Uh, what the writer tells us here in Genesis 3. So she, Eve that is, took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that very moment, their eyes came open, and they suddenly, suddenly felt shame. Can somebody shout shame? Can you type that in the chat? Shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together, to cover themselves. And there ends the reading. God bless this teaching in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were with us last week, I uh, gave you the definition for an illusion. An illusion is a false perception of reality. And here's the deal. Because of a lot of the pain that has happened to us and pain that has happened around us, we have to keep identifying and exposing some of the challenging false perceptions of realities uh, that we are carrying within us. Because I'm suggesting this, that there are some illusions, if we do not expose and confront, they will destabilize our homes and our families. They will uh, essentially disempower our individual lives and our collective ability to move forward, progress, to make progress and change and to be healthy community. And literally, my friends, they will damage our souls, damage our souls. As I was thinking about this message, and I'm going to back into a couple of illusions that I want to talk about as we work through uh, Genesis 2 and 3. But as I was thinking about this message, I was, just started talking to God. God, I, I need to bring a message to everybody, but what do you particularly want to say to men and to fathers and to father figures? The Lord reminded me of the distinction between the zoomed out view of creation that we read in chapter one and the zoomed in view of creation that we read in chapter two. And there's a powerful distinction there. And I encourage you to go home and read these two chapters and look at these two distinctions. In Genesis chapter one, it's the zoomed out view. The word used for God is Elohim, the sovereign, all powerful one, simply translated God. And the way creation happens in Genesis chapter 1, it simply begins with these words, and God said. For example, and God said, let there be light. And boom, there was light. And God said, and it just works through the, through the text, chapter 1, zoomed out view, the power of God's word. But in chapter 2, we get the zoomed in view, my goodness, and we find a God who's not just kind of standing aloft, just speaking things. But we also find a God who is intimately involved in the details, pouring his loving heart, pouring his loving care into every aspect. As a matter of fact, the word translated for God in Genesis chapter 2 is really the personal use for God. It's Yahweh Elohim. It's the Lord God. So as you read through it, you'll see the Lord God. That means this is the God who's in relationship. This is the God who works uh, within the history of Israel uh, through his love and being in relationship. This is the relational God. This is the Lord God who longs to connect with you. 
And we see him pouring himself out, right? Verse 4, it says, and the Lord God, it indicates, made the earth and the heaven like a craftsman. Verse 7, it says, and the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils. Look at that tenderness. Look at that intimacy. Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living person. Look at that, pouring himself. Personal involvement. Verse 8, it says, and God planted. Look at that, look at that, look at that word, planted. makes me think of my grandmother um, outside of the trailer where I grew up at. And she'd be there at a certain time of the year with a hose and a shovel, digging up the ground, pulling up the weeds, preparing and planting. This is the notion here that the writer wants you to get about this, uh, this relational God. He planted a, a garden called Eden, a place of delight. And it says, and he, he took the man and he placed him in it. Look at that personal involvement. Look at that. Look at God pouring his heart into what he's doing. Wow. And in verse 19, uh, it says that the Lord God formed out of the dust of the earth all of the wild animals and all of the, all of the, all of the birds. You see that, that involvement. And, and then comes verse 21. We see it powerful. It's the first surgery that God performs himself. He sees all up in this thing. He's fully involved here. It says, so the Lord God calls the man essentially to fall into a deep sleep. God has the best sedative there is, right? <laughs> and while the man slept, the Lord God, look at this notion, look at this personal involvement, took out one of the man's ribs. And then watch the tenderness here. It says, and then he closed up the opening. Wow. Then the Lord God made a woman from that rib and brought him to the man. And I told you last week, Adam and Eve turned out to be just right for one another. Now, I'm taking this time because I want you to see the love that is being poured out every step of the way. This extravagant love as he's preparing the space for Adam and Eve and ultimately for humanity and ultimately for all of us. It, it is this extravagant degree of love. And he does this even though he knows they're going to mess up. And horrendous consequences is going to come. But their mess ups and their horrendous consequences does not change how extravagantly God loves them. And that was it. God says, that's the message that I want you to deliver to the men that's going to be paying attention to you, that to the father figures, I want you to say to them that no matter who they are or where they are or what circumstances they're living their lives to, I want them to hear that God, God declares, that he is saying, I love you with all my heart. I see you, I know you, and I love you. I love you with all my heart. It said, you know, Jeremiah 31, God puts it this way. I have loved you with an everlasting love. My friend, Dr. Tony Williams, translates that word everlasting to outlasting. He says what that means essentially is that God is saying to all of you, I've loved you with an outlasting love. My love will outlast every flaw. My love will outlast every mistake. My love will outlast every sin in your life. I love you with my whole heart. That is the message of the beginning of chapter 2 as, we, as creation rises up. Enveloped in the love of God. Yes. It speaks directly to an illusion that a lot of us, men in particular, everybody in general, but men in particular, that we carry. 
Some of you are watching me right now. I'm going to name this illusion. You carry this illusion. The illusion is this, that God's love for me is based on my behavior and my performance. And when my behavior is good and my performance is excellent, then he loves me. But if I have terrible performance and devastating behavior, then God no longer loves me. And I want to say to you that that is a lie. That is a false perception of reality. That is not true. It is not true. God loves you without condition. Now, you know, I think about the person who's listening to me. He says, well, you know, the guy, you're thinking about your inadequacies and your failures. You know, and I want you to know God says, I see you. I know all about that. But I love you with all my heart. The person, you, you've called in a cycle of sin and destruction. You've done some horrendous things. You've unleashed some terrible consequences in your home and your family and other places. And it's just it's hard for you to get this. And I need you to hear God says, I see you. I know that. I'm not endorsing or approving of all that horrible stuff. It breaks my heart to see the devastating stuff that's happening to you and happening around you. I'm broken about that. I don't like that. As a matter of fact, God might say sometimes, I don't even like you. Come on now. There's a difference between like and love. And I think that there's some evil, nasty, mean people in the world that God doesn't necessarily like. I read a, a, someone sent me an article the other day of a pastor who says, you know, that if you're a Democrat, you're going to preach this to a big crowd of people. And he told them, if you're a Democrat, get out of the congregation. Oh, my God. I don't think God likes that pastor. But I know God loves him. And God loves you with his whole heart. His whole heart. So here's your homework for this, for this week. I want to encourage you to get up. You've got to retrain your brain here, especially some of you guys. You know, I just encourage you to get up every morning, look in the mirror, and here's what I want you to say. Thank you, God, for loving me so extravagantly. Thank you, God, for loving me. Just say it with me now. Thank you, God, for loving me so extravagantly. Oh, if you don't get anything out of this message, get this. Thank you, God, for loving me so extravagantly. And here's what I believe. Long before performance shifts and behavior changes and, and all of that stuff, I believe that the moment we begin to internalize the extravagant love of God, that's the moment that we find healing that we can't find in other places, empowerment to do and to be what we cannot do and be on our God, thank you for loving me. I want you seven days. That's, that's my prescription for you. Look in the mirror. God, thank you for loving me extravagantly. All right, that's the first point. Well, if everything we find in chapter 2 is enveloped in this extravagant love, then it should change how we read every part of chapter 2 of Genesis and how we read chapter 3, for example. Notice verse 16 through 17. You know, here's, here's one way that we read the text. We read, it, uh, we read it as prescriptive. Look what the text says. But the Lord God warned him, meaning the man, Adam. Here's what he said to Adam. You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except, shout except, type that in the chat, except, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And when we read that descriptively, uh, 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 or rather prescriptively, we read it with this interpretation. God is saying to Adam, if you fool around and mess up, I'm going to punish you with death. But in the backdrop of the extravagant love I've just told you, we're not called to read that text prescriptively. We're called to read it descriptively. 
that what God is describing, he's simply describing. He says, look, Adam, here's what I'm going to give for you and Eve. I'm investing you with the superpower. Remember last weekend? Of choice. You will have rested in your hand the knowledge, the know-how of how to create good in the midst of evil and how to create evil in the midst of good. That, that, that your choices can sustain uh, a blessed life and your choices can, can, can disrupt the blessed life and facilitate horrendous consequences of evil and destruction. I'm putting this power in your hand. And I can almost hear Uncle Ben in Spider-Man 2, come on now, as he's dying and Peter Parker. You know, Spider-Man is there. Uh, Uncle Ben has been shot, and Peter Parker wants to go find the person who shot him and kill that person. And Uncle Ben, in his dying breath, looks at, at Peter Parker, the one who would be Spider-Man. He says, Peter, always remember this. With great power comes great responsibility. Oh, my, 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 my high schoolers who are graduating, I, I need you to, come on, tattoo that. Come on, we, we're doing all kinds of stuff. <laughs> tattoo that in your brain. With great power comes great. You can't wait to drive. You can't wait to make decisions about drinking and sex and how, what late, how late to stay up and how early to rise. You can't wait to have that power. Just understand this. With great power comes great responsibility. And what God was saying to Adam and ultimately to Eve is that when you utilize that power and those, res- those responsibilities well, you sustain a blessed life. But when you do it wrongly, you will create a cursed life, a life of evil and destruction. And a lot of what we're dealing with in terms of violence and all of the stuff that we're contending with here in the world today, most of it has a lot to do with not God sending it on us, but how we've misused what's in our hands. Guys, including our families, etc. That brings me to the next illusion. We haven't said it out loud, guys, but oftentimes we think this, and everybody else that's listening, is simply this. I can't trust God's love when I mess up. If that's actually your disposition. It means, and I'm really talking to the guy who feels like, you know, you can never get it right. You know, your, your beloved constantly tells you about how you're getting it wrong. Your kids are constantly telling you how you're getting it wrong. You're constantly pointing out to yourself how you're getting it wrong. And, 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 and inside of that place, you know, you haven't said it, but this is what you believe. I don't think I can trust God's love when I mess up. And so if you can't trust God's love, you turn away from God. You don't turn to God. You don't turn to God. Another way of saying this is, I can't be vulnerable with God when I most need Him, and I most need Him when I mess up. And if I can't be vulnerable with God, then I sure enough can't be vulnerable to the people around me. And if I'm unable to be vulnerable, I like to use this word, courageously vulnerable, man, then, then I shut the door to the necessary ingredient that, that has, to, has to transpire in order for me to grow through my mess-ups rather than getting trapped in cycles. Okay, let me illustrate. What is that whisper that keeps telling us we can't trust God when we mess up? Yeah, notice this, Genesis 3, 7. Watch this. At that moment, moment when they messed up, their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame. There it is. Shame. Shame at their nakedness. Now listen, they had always been naked. What was different here? The moment we mess up, you know, social scientists say this about shame. I say we all deal with shame. 
One of the challenges with men is we don't have language for it and we don't recognize shame when it's showing up in our lives. But so science says everybody deals with shame from time to time in our lives unless you do not have the capacity to empathize or be compassionate, which means you're a sociopath. So unless you're a sociopath, we all deal with shame, right? But not often do we have the language to identify it, to know that we're dealing with it. The text calls this to to forefront. It says they were shamed about that. Megan's noticed this. They'd always been shamed. But once they had done what they did, shame changes how we look at ourselves and how we look at God and how we look at each other. And I've said this before. Guilt is, is, you know, helps to lead towards transformation because it says I did something bad and I hold that up against the person that I want to be and I move towards transformation. Shame says I am something bad. I am someone bad. And it traps us. It whispers to us, you're never going to be enough. It whispers to us, who do you think you are that you can somehow break free of this? It whispers to us, you can't trust even being vulnerable with God. Yeah, he loves you, but not that much. That's what shame does. I'm sure many of you have heard of the uh, social scientist, Benet Brown. She's super uh, popular. She's just written a book uh, uh, well, she's written tons of books, actually. And most people do not know that she's a Christian, a Jesus follower. And the 25 years ago, really her first, she writes about shame and vulnerability and about worthiness and all of this stuff. And really her first encounter was 25 years ago, two days after she got out of college, she went and found an AA program because she was, a, she was an active alcoholic. She was a, what they call a, a functioning alcoholic. And the first thing she had to do with that was to surrender her life to a power greater than herself and to acknowledge that her life was out of control and to work through all those steps, which was all about vulnerability, first to God and then to others around. And God met her in that experience and literally transformed her. And 25 years later, she's one of the most sought after speakers. Her YouTube talks are like tens of millions uh, out there on YouTube. The other day I heard her talking to... um, Oprah Winfrey, and she was talking about her own bouts with shame. And she said after she blew up into a big figure, she started reading the comments that people were leaving behind in her social media, and it threw, pushed her into a depression. She said some of the comments that she was reading just was so evil and so nasty. She couldn't believe that people would say these things about her. For example, one person wrote, of course she's embracing imperfection. If you were Benet Brown, you would have to. What choice would you have? Another person wrote, less research and more Botox, Benet. Another person wrote, maybe you'll be worthy in 20 pounds. Wow. She said she was in this deep, dark depression, and she started watching 11 hours of Downington Abbey. And she began, the thought came to her mind. Obviously, God brought this thought. What time period and what was going on in America during that time period? It's around 1910, what she was looking at. She looked it up, and she ran across this, throat, this quote by Theodore Roosevelt. And guys, I want you to lean in here. Father figures, I want you to lean in. Men, I want you to really lean in here. here, here here's a word for you. I mean, she, this is how she, had, she found this as she got ready to try to find a way to confront her shame that was, that was rising up in her, that voice that was raising up in her. But I want you to hear this quote that Theodore Roosevelt wrote and that she named her most recent book, Dare, Dare Greatly Behind. Listen to this quote. Listen, guys. Listen, dads. Listen. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit 
Theodore Roosevelt says, belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat because they dare not step in the arena. Wow. And it is conclusions that she drew that I found to be most incredible, empowering, and just spoke to me as a man and as a father and as a husband, and I want to offer them to you. She said, number one, she said the first conclusion she came out of that is that she says, that's who I want to be. I want to be courageous and daring, and I want to be in the arena. And then number two, she says this, it's not winning, it's not losing, it's simply showing up and being seen. Wow. And when she said that, she made me think of the, of the times back in Boston. I've been thinking about these stuff in the midst of all this shooting and violence and kids dying and all this. Uh, it made me think about, you know, there was a mother in my congregation whose daughter was violently murdered back in Boston. And I showed up in her house. And I had no answers. I couldn't fix anything. But I just sat with her. I, I, I walked into that pain and I experienced that pain. I sit with her. I thought about another occasion where at 4 o'clock in the morning I had to show up at the hospital, another mother, different mother, whose son had been violently murdered just a few hours earlier. I had no answers. I couldn't fix anything. I couldn't change nothing. You know, we men, we want to fix things and change. I couldn't. But I just joined her and her family. And I remember walking with her step by step as we went to, to identify the, the body of her son. And as I thought about that, and I thought about, you know, as coming into Father Day, I, I think about fatherhood in particular. And, and many of you who are dad figures, check this out, and mentors and coaches who are really leaning into the lives of young people, get this. You know, I've got a 31-year-old, and I've got an 18-year-old, and I've got a new 14-year-old nephew that I'm helping to raise. And listen... Here's what I figured out. There comes time in your kids' lives where you can't fix what they're going through. You, 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 you don't have answers for the challenges that they are facing. You just don't. But you show up anyhow. You show up and you be seen. And so just for a few moments, I want to celebrate those dads who are listening to me, those father figures who are listening to me, and you just keep showing up. You're not perfect. Sometimes you say the wrong thing. Sometimes, you know, you do the wrong thing. But you just keep showing up for your beloved. You keep showing up for your kids. You keep showing up for your good friends. You just keep showing up. And you're being seen. You're stepping into the pain where they are. You can't fix it. You don't have any answers. But you just keep showing up. You're the man in the arena that we celebrate today on Father's Day. On Father's Day. 
And yet, from time to time, it is the voice of shame that would dare try to talk you into believing you're nothing, you're not doing nothing, you are a failure. I rebuke those illusions and those voices today in Jesus' name. And we celebrate you for continuing to show up. Now, let me end here. I want to get to the conclusion here. If you read uh, verse 7, 8, and 4, you, you'll find that, 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 that shame that I read, and read about in verse 7. It calls Adam first and then Eve to get caught in a cycle. And so, man, I want to make sure you don't get, I want to identify this cycle we often get caught in. You know, the shame, the first thing they did was they sewed fig leaves together. They covered up. Often we cover up. We lie about what's going wrong in our lives. We cover it up. The second thing they did, they hid. Often we hide secrecy and silence. And in that secrecy and in that silence, come on now, we are constantly judging ourselves and telling ourselves how horrible we are. Then thirdly, rather than assuming responsibility, they shifted blame. They said it was the other person's fault. It was the other person's fault rather than stepping in and trusting that, that they, they could trust the love of God even in the midst of their greatest mess ups. But they, they, that, that voice of shame said, you can't trust God. And they shifted blame. All right, let's just walk through and let, let me just, and inside of that, God asked three questions that he already knows the answer to because he's trying to lead them to a place where they can have a breakthrough. Watch this. In the midst of the garden of their calamity. Here, the text says this. I love this verse. I just talked about showing up, how wonderful it is for you to show up. Listen, God showed up on that day. The text says in verse eight, when the cool evening breeze started to blow, he says, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking in the, in, in the garden, and it wasn't a volcano. It wasn't a God who was showing up trying to figure out where you are so I can kill you. It was the soft breeze of a quiet, loving God who shows up in the midst of their pain. He's in pain. He's brokenhearted. Come on now. Empathy between God and those who trust him. That's what's being described here. And he's not coming to kill them. He's walking to try to figure out how to save them. And yes, they've unleashed the forces of death, but God says, well, death will come, but not today. Not today. Not today. And God asks three questions, two overtly, and one is implied where he tries to leave. It's because God knows the answers to all the questions he's asking. The first question he asks is to the guy, to the man. He says, he says Adam, father, husband, man, brother, where are you? He's in God's garden. God knows exactly. God is omnipresent. He knows exactly where he is. This question is for Adam to, to assess and discern. Where are you? Adam answers, I'm hiding. The implied question, why are you hiding? Adam answers, well, I'm hiding because I discovered that I'm naked and I'm afraid. And every time you read the word naked, you got to think of, you got to think shame. I'm ashamed. I'm afraid. Third question, God says, well, who told you was naked? What, who, where did you get that lens through which you are looking at your life? Come on now. Did you break the commandment that I told you not to do? In other words, what did you do, Adam? What did you do? And it's at this point, he has an option. Do I trust God in the, in the middle of, do I trust God's love, his extravagant love, in the middle of the worst thing I've ever done? Or do I deflect and he deflected. And he missed this opportunity. You know what the text says. He said, well, what did you do? Adam said, where was that woman that you 
God goes to the woman and he says, what did you do? And she said, she's following Adam and Eve. Well, it was a serpent. Reflect. Shifting blame. And in so doing, they missed the opportunity. The door closed on the ability to grow through that remarkable experience. Hey, brothers, I'm telling you, you don't want to get trapped in that cycle. So many of us are trapped in the cycle. Covering up, hiding, shifting blame. Covering up, hiding, shifting blame. It is a moment to be courageously vulnerable. You know, um, Francis Collins writes a book that he calls From Good to Great. It's a fabulous book. And it came out many, many years ago. And the essence of that book, which came out many years ago, was uh, he wanted to compare what is the difference between good companies Companies that be good, but they never become great versus companies that become great. And one of the things he discovered was the difference had a lot to do with the CEOs, the people who were leading. And those companies that just got stuck at being good, oftentimes they had CEOs who, when there was a downturn in the company, they would always look through the window. He calls it looking through the window effect. And they would find it was... They'd find some other reason other than themselves. Well, it's a downturn in the economy. It's the, 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 the staff didn't do X, Y, and Z. It's this. It's that. But the CEOs of the companies that rose to greatness, like Apple and, uh, you know, AT&T and McDonald's, for example, you know, and others, they would look in the mirror as opposed to looking through the window. And they would ask themselves the question, what could I do differently? What could I do differently? Now, one of the reasons why we find it difficult to look into the mirror and ask ourselves the question, that's what Adam and Eve should have done. They didn't. They looked through the window. But, 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 and so they missed their opportunity. And, and, and what we learn is that in a space of being courageously vulnerable, looking in the mirror, that's where creativity and innovation, watch this, and growth, human growth and industry growth, all takes place in that unique, vulnerable place of courageous one. Listen to me, guys, and everybody. Listen in that space. But why can't we look in the mirror? Because we have the voice of shame. Shame. Why can't we be honest with God? Because we have the voice of shame. I said, you can't trust him. And I want to challenge you to recognize that voice and push past it. Listen, last story. When I was a kid growing up, I was scarred, many of you know, in my head. I'd wear a knit cap to cover up those scars. And from time to time, I'd run into some mean kids. They'd pull the cap off, throw it down in the dirt. They'd make fun of me and expose my scars. And I felt so ashamed. As soon as I could get that knit cap, I'd put it back on my head. And I didn't go anywhere. I kept that knit cap on my head. Not too long ago, I, as a leader, I made a leadership misstep. And all of a sudden, I felt like that little boy, and somebody had pulled his cap off. I felt, I felt just like, in a sense, Adam and Eve. I felt naked. I felt exposed. And, and the temptation was to look through the window. But I've been around long enough to know that I can trust God. First and foremost, I can be vulnerable with God enough to look in the mirror. So what can I do differently? Wow. I said the last few weeks I've talked about doing life with God. That's what it looks like. 
looking in the mirror and with God. Watch this. And when you look in the mirror, you got to push shame out of the way and don't look condemningly at yourself because the scripture tells us that in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation. He's taking care of the condemnation. So, so be kind as you look at yourself so you can be honest as you look at yourself without judging yourself because this is your moment of growth. It's the moment to bless your family and your loved ones. Now, let me just sum it up here. I'm, 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 I'm finished now. Let me just give you some takeaways. Don't, the next time you're standing at that intersection, do I be vulnerable with God or, do, or not? Do I shift blame? Am I vulnerable with those who love? Because the moment I can learn to be vulnerable with God, then I can learn to be vulnerable with people. And so my basic gift to you and challenge to the fathers and the men and to everybody who's listening, let's learn to practice regularly courageous vulnerability. Yeah. And here's how it looks, number one. Uh, as we choose courageous vulnerability, number one, it means let's be willing to look in the mirror and to own our stuff and to ask for forgiveness. That's what, that's what Adam and Eve should have done. That's what they should have done. Said, look, God, Adam should have said it was me. I messed up. You didn't tell me. You told me what not to do, and I did it anyway. I don't understand why I, got, I did that. And now I'm aware that some huge consequences is coming, God. I throw myself on your mercy. Tell me what to do. That's the kind of vulnerability. That would have been his moment of growth. It would have changed how Eve would have reacted. It would have changed the scenario. I don't know how it would have shifted human history, but, but, but it would have been a major shift for Adam. Make that shift a practice in your life. Those who are listening to me, here's what First John says. It is at the heart of this teaching. He says, look, if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive. This is the point of having our faith in the one who died on Calvary's cross. He's just, and he will forgive us for our sins because he's already paid for them. And he will purify, remove shame and guilt from our lives. That's what the word purify means. Purify us from all unrighteousness. And then number two, courageous vulnerability means being able to ask for help. Sometimes you're working with your teenagers or you're engaging with your teenagers and they're in a world that's kind of radically different from our world. And you might just have to pause before you, before you, you, know, you keep fussing at them. You might just pause and say, help me to understand your world. Help me to understand where you're living at. Help me to understand what's going on. I may not agree with your decisions, but just help me to understand. You know, you want to get to the next level in your job. You reach out to your colleagues and say, can you help me uh, learn how to do this project? If you're in school and you're struggling, I'm really talking to young men. Come on now. Be courageous and vulnerable enough to reach out and say, ask the teacher and ask some of your, your peers. Come on, help me to figure out how to work through this chemistry because I'm that committed to getting an A as opposed to something less. I want to be my best. Ask for help. Ask for help. That's what happened. Here's what Galatians says. Share each other's burdens. And in so doing, you fulfill, obey the law of Christ, which essentially was this. Love one another. Christ says, love one another as I have loved you. Well, people can't share your burdens if you don't ask for help. But if you ask for help. And then lastly, be mindful of your yeses and your noes. I love what Jesus said in the teaching of Matthew. He says, look, you don't have to be swearing about anything. He says, essentially, he says, at the end of the day, all you need to do is to say, simply say yes or say no. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Here's the point. Don't say yes to something you're not sure about, guys. If you're not sure that you can be there, if you're not sure you can do it, just say, I'm not sure. I'll try, maybe, but don't say yes. 
Be mindful of your yeses and be mindful of your noes. And therefore build the credibility. But it all begins with your and my willingness to practice being vulnerable, courageously vulnerable first with God. Don't miss that growth opportunity, fathers and sons and mentors and all others. And then begin to practice being vulnerable, courageously vulnerable with others. And watch God keep doing the impossible through your life as you dare be the one in the arena. God bless you. Happy Father's Day. Amen. Okay, listen. I want to encourage you to take a step towards courageous vulnerability, whether you're a dad or father figure or whether you're, uh, you fit some other category, a student going to class, uh, whatever the case might be, a spouse. And so scan the, code, the QR code right here on the screen. And you're going to see next steps with Jesus. And perhaps this is the day that you want to say, I want to become a Jesus follower and I want to follow him straight into my destiny. And I want his strength to give me what I need to be courageously vulnerable. I want to trust him as the ultimate expression of the love of God. There's some other options there you can check today as well. If you'd like for us to follow up with you, check that option and we'll follow up with you. Also, Take a picture of this reflection question. Here's what I want you to pray through during the course of this week. What's one area in my life that I will strive to practice courageous vulnerability this week?